0: Hello and welcome back to the GM Cancer Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Greater Manchester Cancer Alliance. I'm Steve Bland and this is the podcast that takes you inside cancer services here in our wonderful region of Greater Manchester. Uh, This is the fourth and final episode in our little series looking at health inequalities in cancer in GM. And in this episode, we're looking specifically at deprivation in Greater Manchester and asking how does that affect our cancer outcomes we're going to be asking questions like what are the issues around deprivation and health and why does deprivation play such a big role in creating health inequalities so my guests uh, today are Gemma Knox who is a advanced nurse practitioner at at Glodic Medical Practice hello Gemma
1: afternoon yeah right
0: yeah (laughs) I'm good thank you they're very cheery (laughs) Um, we've got Mary Marshall who is a GP at the Village Medical Practice hello Mary
2: Hello, Stephen.
0: And we've got Dan Clark, who is the health inequalities uh, project manager at the GM Cancer Alliance. Hello, Dan.
3: Hi, Stephen. You're
0: right. Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, nice to have you all along. Um, I introduced uh, Gemma and Mary as as working for different um, medical practices there, but you guys actually work together. Just to explain your your working relationship, Mary.
2: So Gemma and I both work for um, a not for profit organisation called Hope Citadel Healthcare. Um, Hope Citadel. Um, run and manage, I think it's nine surgeries across the Northwest, particularly focusing on deprived areas. Um, So there's four in Oldham and then another four scattered across Rochdale, Middleton and Haywood, and then one in central Manchester. So whilst I work in the village practice in Shaw, which is in Oldham, um, at some point throughout the week, I also work with Gemma as a nurse practitioner on Monday in Gloddick um, which is in central Oldham um, and we cover a lot of the 24-hour care residents and um, that live in Oldham there's quite a lot of them um, some of the things that we do range from quite day-to-day things like coughs and colds um, a lot of advanced care planning and then in, in that comes kind of a lot of palliative care really and symptom control.
0: But how does your experience of, of, of the way deprivation affects all aspects of cancer care how does that um how does that change going across those nine practices because you must, you must see some differences even though there are some similarities
2: um I think the deprivation spans across all care not just cancer care you know all care that we see every day I work primarily in Oldham um and what I see is a lot of people who struggle with kind of chaotic lifestyles um and i find that cancer care in oldham or my my recent um, experience has been kind of chaotic chaotic kind of coming to the point of realising somebody has cancer and getting kind of diagnosed and treated. Um, The Northern Care Alliance, which is where we refer to, spans across multiple hospitals, and people are often sent to multiple appointments across multiple hospitals. Also having to go down to the Christie, which for someone living in Oldham without much money is is a long way. It's a full day out, if not more. Um, So I think the practicalities of of cancer diagnosis and treatment from Oldham particularly Feels feels difficult. Um, I'm sure it's diff- I'm sure it's difficult as well in Manchester. But I've not worked in Central Manchester for quite a while. Um, I know they're a lot closer to the Christie, which is helpful. Uh, locally, they're a lot cr- closer to Central Manchester hospitals. Um, but it feels here like although there are a lot of Places around that people can go to to get diagnosed and treated—it it just feels like a real difficulty getting them there and, and kind of coordinating the care.
0: Use the word chaotic there. Just explain a little bit about you know, the sort of chaos that you see day to day with the patients that you treat.
2: People living in deprived areas often, but not always, will will have multiple things going on in their lives that are kind of out of their control. Um, so they might live on a low income. They might have. Um, difficulties with their housing they might have difficulties with their uh, childcare, they might have difficulties um, with their extended family it's not just about their health but when all these things come together um, it's very difficult for people to access the healthcare that they need when there's so much burden on them already in their everyday lives um, it feels like sometimes managing their health um, and coming forward to get help about their health early on is is, sometimes it's a bridge too far for them. um, And we see it all the time, people not being able to make it to appointments or not being able to make it to follow-ups. And we try and ring them and can't answer their phone. And and it's just a a multitude of kind of everyday stresses um, that I'm sure everybody has up and down the country, but just seems to be amplified in these deprived areas.
0: Gemma, this is is probably something that I imagine to a lot of people listening, it's really hard to get your head around the notion that you might not go to a screening appointment or you might not go to yeah any other appointment because you can't take a day off work because you might work cash in hand or because you don't want to pay a bus fare we don't want to pay a parking fare when you get to the appointment or you know just the uh, the general you know uh, difficulties of a daily life are are such that you can't or you would rather miss that appointment and run the risk of missing a diagnosis than you would uh, go to that appointment that's quite difficult to get your head around
1: it is but i think sadly being born and bred in Oldham um, and even going as as far as wide as my party background started off primarily and largely in Yorkshire there's you know it's just day-to-day life people and they just don't think you know there's anything wrong with missing them appointments if you can't make ends meet and you can't get to them appointments then then so be it. it it just seems since Covid as well that Everything just has, like Mary said, become a little bit more chaotic and sparse. And can we still keep blaming everything to COVID? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. But as going back to your question about people not turning up to appointments, sometimes they don't even know they're turning up. But we've had it in, in the news recently up in Newcastle where patients aren't getting letters That's not just Newcastle. That's that's kind of everywhere. Letters sometimes don't turn up. We have it here with the care homes. We'll get DNA letters coming through saying your patient's not turned up for this assessment. Your patient's not turned up for that. The patients sometimes aren't even aware that these letters have even been sent out. And it just pushes things back and people lose sometimes that little bit of hope and things just do end up sometimes a little quite messy to be
0: fair so what do you guys do <clears throat> uh, then from the point of view of a medical practice or a number of medical practices what do you guys do mary to make sure that people know their appointment we're talking about all the sort of practicalities here you know how do you make sure they know uh when their appointment is where their appointment is how to get there you know, all the kind of stuff that maybe we take for granted that maybe isn't obvious mm. to some people.
2: Yeah, it is super difficult. Um, sometimes as GPs, we only find out about people's appointments after they've happened, um, and we try and explain that to people. Sometimes you are the first, you know, the patient is the first person to know what's happened and what's happening next. Uh, however, there are ways, within Hope Citadel at least, that we can we, we, we can help to a degree. Um, so we've luckily, in the Glodic area, got... um Gary and Gemma are nurse practitioners and they're similar across the other practices to a lesser degree who can advocate for patients in 24-hour care homes. They can, once they know a referral's been generated, they'll liaise with the, you know, they'll liaise with management. They'll make sure that there's transport arranged. So they're a little bit easier. In some of the um, (coughs) other practices or all all of the other practices, we have got focused care workers. I don't know if you've heard of this role before. We've got focused care workers attached to um, all of our surgeries who come from primarily a non-medical background. They often come from a social care background. Sometimes they've done a bit of nursing, but we can use them. We can, we can tap into their services. We can refer patients to them who we are a little bit worried about. So if we identify patients, young or old, who we're worried about accessing care to get in touch with them at the point of referral, and and help them through the early process of getting to appointments. It doesn't necessarily have to be taking them, although that has happened in the past, but it's just kind of making sure they have a little bit of a reminder. They've talked to them about how they're gonna get to their hospital appointment. Do they know where it is? Do they need somebody to go with them? Um, and sometimes following up a little bit afterwards. So that focus care practitioner can see them through the whole journey. But often it's just to start with, just to make sure things are kind of um, on track, really, and in place. And then they'll often pull away until they're needed again. Um, so they're really helpful. Uh, and I know that that focus care role was started within Hope Citadel, but it has rolled out across a lot of the Northwest practices and it seems to be working really, really well. Also within Hope Citadel, because we know we're in a deprived area, because we know that a lot of our referrals may get missed or may get overlooked, um, we tend to just as practitioners try um, on a day-to-day basis, although it's not always easy, to recognise the patients who were are a bit worried about socially, who may, who may not be able to make it to an appointment or may not be taking their symptoms seriously, um, and just kind of pick these out these pick these individuals really on, on a bit more of an individual basis and saying what what you know what can we do to make sure these are okay maybe book them in for a phone appointment at a couple a couple of days after referral and just kind of do that bit of extra safety netting I think that's kind of built into our ethos within Hope Citadel um it's easy to forget because we're all busy you know and it's and it's not perfect and general practice is hard day to day it's really hard to keep track of everyone but definitely kind of at the, at the core of our um... Of our treatment basis is to try and pick out the individuals who who need us most, and and following them through that little bit more.
0: Do you have that in in a patient's notes, or you know, is it so sort of documented that maybe this person might need a bit of extra support around the practicalities of an appointment?
2: It can be sometimes informally. So we, we we would probably code them or alert to say that they're a focus care patient, for example. So if we've we've gone as far as to referring them to our focus care practitioner, that's usually kind of logged in the notes. Um, and sometimes we've got a little kind of yeah a little alert system to just say this person's you know multiple dna in the past or they might be known quite well to mental health services and there might be a little flag up there and that should be a little reminder for practitioners that this person might need a bit more
0: dan let's bring you in now we've talked about the the nine practices that Gemma and mary work across but let's kind of broaden it out to the whole of greater manchester you know we have we have some of the, the most deprived areas of the country don't we in greater manchester so what's the picture like across the region
3: so in terms of in terms of deprivation across the region, we are the third most deprived uh, ICB, so Integrated Care Board, so GM as a kind of area. About close to 50% of our population live in that most deprived area. Um, so as a as a as a group of patients, we absolutely need to focus on them. Um, there is a there is a framework that NHS have released called Core 20 plus five that um, i know um, will have featured in the first podcast in the series um with the intro to health inequalities where nhs services now should be really concentrating on that core 20 so the 20% most deprived in our population and designing services around them and and I suppose that's really our focus at the Cancer Alliance at the moment is um, as well as other health inequality groups but particularly with deprivation which 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 drives a lot of our other health inequality groups that when we're designing or or, or implementing new new services that that group of people is very much um, at the core of those interventions and that we are making sure that we we aren't widening the inequalities but trying to reduce them wherever we can so so a good example of that would be something like our targeted lung health check program um whereas we know smoking is one of the biggest drivers of um the the inequalities in cancer incidence so you if you smoke you're more likely to get cancer and you're more likely to smoke if you come from one of our deprived areas so the targeted lung health check program which is a, a program for um people who have smoked, so ever smokers, um, or people who are smoking, um, 55 plus, um, it it will bring them into a mobile unit and give them a a sort of health questionnaire around their smoking, um, so a health check. And then um, if they're designated to be at a certain level of risk, we'll give them a low-dose CT scan to look for lung cancers. And there's been some really good evidence that this is driving early diagnosis of, of lung cancer. When we've designed that program, what we've done is we've we've targeted those areas of higher deprivation first. So we're making sure that um, the, the the truck visits those areas first, along with things like lung cancer incidence and smoking rates, which all kind of go hand in hand. Um, so that that population is, um, is 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 supported first because the the, the, the rates are higher because of that deprivation and linked to smoking. Um, Another example, so we've just employed a number of primary care facilitators whose jobs it will be to work with um, primary care around quality improvements around cancer um, on a number of kind of um, various improvement projects to support the primary care networks, which is kind of the small groups of GP practices that serve kind of 40 000 to 50,000 patients um, to to support them improving the sort of early diagnosis of cancer, people coming forward, access—you know—some of those challenges that we get in our deprived communities. And again, that, that those those workers will be targeting practices and PCNs in our more deprived areas of Greater Manchester. So I suppose they're just some of the ways that we're we're trying to make sure that where we are putting resource, both financially and in terms of time, that we are targeting these people that we know. Already uh, are, are experiencing poor outcomes along the cancer pathway.
0: Just go back to like some of the practicalities we talked about um, earlier on. Say I'm someone that can't afford a five pound bus fare, a ten pound bus fare. Can't afford to take you know a couple of hours off yep. work because I'm paid cash in hand for my job. What? And I phone I phone Mary up and I say, Mary, I'm I'm really sorry, I missed my screen. I missed my appointment. I just couldn't afford to make it yeah you know, what support can Mary offer? what support can uh, GP practices offer?
3: Yeah, so I think I think one thing we're really clear about is is travel cost isn't the only reason that people aren't turning up so I think in, in cancer particularly a lot of the time we'll get oh we'll just pay for their travel so we're doing this thing we're asking people to travel we'll just pay for their travel and I think we're quickly starting to realize that the cost of travel isn't the only driver for people in deprived areas turning up for appointments it is the time it is the it is the work situation it is the caring responsibilities and responsibilities and 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 a lot of those other life stresses that Mary talked about earlier um, so very much as part of our process of designing services we're thinking about you know, how people travel and what we need to do to to make that as, as effective as possible. So if we take um, one of the programmes we're working on at the moment, which is single-queue diagnosis, which is that idea that we've got um, a, a certain amount of di- diagnostic capacities so or tests, essentially, that um, which, which people need to have to decide whether they do or don't have cancer. In GM, we might have a certain amount of, of, of capacity. So a certain number of tests we can do, say, in a day or a week. Um, but let's say we've got four in Wigan and one in oldham um that 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 week we might be saying to an oldham patient can you travel to Wigan um, and obviously a person in a much more deprived situation is going to struggle with that more than someone who who can travel they're, they're more affluent they've got the means and the time to travel and what we're looking at in terms of that pathway and it's, it's not we haven't we haven't got it perfected yet but is how do we how do we support patients who can travel to travel so we can free up local appointments for people who can't travel? That's quite complex in terms of how you decide who can and can't. And I think that's the bit we're kind of, um, we're kind of sort of working through at the moment, but it's that idea that, you know, just saying we'll pay for travel is no longer that kind of acceptable response to the cancer pathway. Um, it's it, it needs to be thought about more clearly. Um, because what I would add is, 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 a cancer pathway. Unlike a lot of others, is, is a real challenge for people um, from deprived backgrounds and other health inequality groups as well. Because of the speed of it, so you know, ideally to hit our cancer targets that we set nationally, we need to be getting people in for their first appointment within seven days. Which, if you've got that, um, if you've got uh, if you're living in a deprived area, you've got some of that chaotic lifestyle that, that Mary was mentioning, some of those stresses, those everyday sort of amplified stresses you know if someone calls you up and goes oh we can get you an appointment tomorrow there's lots of things that make that really challenging and we know your know, people from deprived areas take longer to get diagnosed and then to get to a treatment decision so it's making sure we look into that and, and, and facilitate those people to get come forward for those um, appointments
0: we've talked a lot about early diagnosis you know going to your screen appointments going to this appointment that appointment how does deprivation impact a bit further on down the line once you're already in the system you've 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 got cancer you're in the cancer pathway you're off you're off and away but how how does deprivation affect you you know further on in terms of your treatment but then, uh, outcomes as well
1: I'll text of it i think going back to the area that we work within oldham that there is it's probably the most overpopulated um deprived area with quite um I wouldn't even, you know, can't even say ethnic minority. it's more of an ethnic majority. And we have here within the practice, we have in-house interpreters. So going back to the the deprivation, some of it comes with education and language barriers as well. So even getting, so a bit like Dan was saying, getting these people there in seven days, sometimes a lack of knowledge or understanding or the education generation-wise, it can either ignite a, a panic or well, if they want me to go for a check so quick, is it cancer and that the mind can spiral off and then that causes more stress upon what's already, again, we've already alluded to with Mary and Dan, lots of stresses in life and that stress for some people, it, it can just freeze them. So then they miss that appointment and then it goes back, well, why have you not been for the appointment and it has to go on. Um, but then same again with language barriers, a lot of our patients either come in with another relative, or need a translator, and them aren't always that easy to come by, especially if you've got mobile units or whatever else to get people. That there's many facets that just kind of put people on the back foot already. Um, and I don't think would ever, even if we probably sat here for days or weeks, or but we're ever going to get right down to the nitty gritty of what how would we solve it? Because it is so complex and so multifaceted for for all of our residents especially the population that we serve in Oldham and like Mary already said earlier especially the populations that Hope Citadel try and look after and I know Mary mentioned before some of the ethos with Hope Citadel but one of the taglines is making the invisible visible and that would be wonderful in, in an absolute utopian world and we absolutely do try our damnedest to advocate and speak for those people for whatever reason may try and get lost may get lost in the system and I always say to my students it's not actually about equality it's about equity sometimes people need that little bit more and you might have to do that little bit more for some people and you might get one person might only get 10 minutes of your time in a day others might get an hour because it's trying to bring them up to the level of everyone else to get what they deserve um how that you know, we saw that going back to deprivation and getting people there, I don't, I don't know Stephen.
0: You mentioned education there quite a few times, you're going back even before you know, your appointments or whatever there's an education piece isn't there for a lot of people where uh, maybe there are, you know, certain um, well, there's a lot of people who probably don't even know what to look for, you know, what are they flagging up what are they going to see Mary with
1: And I, I think that's it. Literally, it's it's a flip of a coin. Even if we go to dancing about getting people, you know, the, the early cancer screenings. Again, it's it's that anxiety. The word cancer, it sets off an anxiety. It's either people want everything doing really quick, or absolutely, if it were anything like my dad, it buries head in the sand. It absolutely buries head and not want to face it. Um, but it is that understanding that knowledge if you've got someone who has a lack of understanding or doesn't understand why we're wanting to do these preliminary tests or just to rule things out well why why and you know sometimes it takes a lot more than we'll just refer you people need the counselling and the time spending with them saying look you know sometimes we do We're, we're a funny breed as clinicians we always work on a sometimes worst case scenario let's Let's look and rule out the worst case and work our way back sometimes. So don't be panicking. Let's try and make sure it's not because what we wouldn't want to do is treat you for a cough or, again, in the lady's case, a urine infection and just ignore it when it actually could be something more sinister. But then it brings us back to, as clinicians, everyone's on an individual basis and that's for us here just within the surgery where we're based at the minute that's over 11,000 individual bases for our patient load. That's a lot of people and a lot of people who are very complex and don't often have the 10 minute GP routine slot time. Things take a lot longer. Um, Probably (laughs) slightly gone off on a tangent there um, to be fair, but It is. I think we'd all love a magic wand and be able to, but sometimes it cannot be solved within a 10, 15 minute or even an half an hour appointment for some people. They need a lot more cushioning um, just to kind of lift them up, a little bit more scaffolding to get them on the way. And the education-wise, it is making them understand smoking. Many people within Oldham will have smoked for years. My parents are them. (laughs) They've done all right up to now. Is it going to kill? Me? And it's it's sometimes it's that no. mindset. Well, I've got this far in life. Will it matter? What's the point in stopping? Um, there's you know you could walk out and step in front of a bus and that might kill me. I'm gonna I'm gonna carry on. But it's not just the cancers, is it? It's the it's the treatments and everything else. What they have to endure afterwards and the ripple of that on to them and the families and society as well. Mary, the
0: the the, the yeah, there were so many. Uh, big challenges that Gemma kind of flagged up there. You know, deprivation is not going to go away anytime soon, is it? We're always going to have, you know, richer areas, poorer areas. That's just that's the way society is. And Manchester, Greater Manchester, will probably always have, you know, some areas of really severe deprivation. Um, so what do we do? I know Dan's obviously already mentioned lots of the projects that are going on, but what, in terms of what you see on the ground, what would you like to happen? What do you think uh, we you know mm. the sort of greater manchester cancer community if you like what can we do what 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 could mm. be done to try and address some of these problems Sure.
2: yeah i think yeah we, we, we've talked a lot about how people kind of access care um and how people are treated and their barriers to that um and you're right a lot of that probably will continue to exist um and and disease let's not forget exists in deprived and affluent areas um it, d- disease is, is is amongst us all um in an ideal world, I'd like to see it go right back to the beginning. I'd like to see more public health emphasis um, from government, from from people on the ground, from from verified resources, not just you know social media and TikTok about what is a healthy diet and how can we integrate that into our lives. Um, in deprived areas, we see a lot of people thinking it's okay to eat fast food five, six, seven times a week. Um, they probably know it's not okay, but it's 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 part of their lifestyle that seemingly makes you know family life easier it's quicker it keeps everybody happy and full Um, but I'd like to see a lot more emphasis nationwide on a good diet the importance of exercise daily the importance of fresh air and what that can do for our mental health and if our mental health is strong then we can deal with so much more physically um I'd like to see more campaigns about stopping smoking or people not starting smoking uh, to begin with I can't see any reason why a teenager or a young person would need to start smoking or indeed vaping uh, in this day and age It's, it's insane um alcohol similarly um I feel like we are very much um a society that's modelled on treating disease, managing disease when it's already there and it's already probably past the point of cure. Um, maybe that's where the money is, I, I, I don't know. But wouldn't it be nice to prevent disease and spend a lot more of our time on on, on keeping people healthy and, and allowing people to see that a physically healthy life is, is, is really... beneficial in a million ways um so that would be my utopia is spending so much more of my time during my consultations um giving advice on on a healthy lifestyle um a fulfilling lifestyle how to be happy at work you know how to fit exercise into my daily regime rather than you know prescribing cholesterol tablets or blood pressure tablets so you know to me that's already that's already a disease that's set in um and i'm i'm treating the top of it but it would be lovely if it didn't, if it wasn't there in the first there place.
0: There you go, Dan. There's your next, your next ten years of work. <laughs> just uh, give Mary her utopia.
3: I'll just try and find that magic wand. No, I think it's, I think it's really challenging, and I think, I think for people in deprived areas, it's, it's, it's getting them to a state, getting them to a situation, sorry, where, where those things—the smoking, the alcohol, the, 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 health, the, the healthy diet, the exercise as much a priority mm-hmm. as or more mm. so than housing and employment and and childcare and all those 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 other factors which we know play stress on their lives because and, and that's that's and that's where we as a cancer alliance unfortunately it's not in our control and that's not me copying out you know we have to be be really clear we we need to we need to solve the bits that are ours of the puzzle i mean the deprivation puzzle is massive and um And the integrated care uh, system, of which I know Alison Pye was on the first um, call. I've got our Fairer Health for All. Um, framework that's coming out, which they're working on around much of them, what we would call wider determinants of health for those other things, the housing, the employment, making Manchester a, a good place to live and grow and and and, and, and be healthy. Um, so so that's that, that and we fit into that system in terms of the cancer piece of, of that puzzle. And um, you know those things like smoking and obesity and alcohol and air pollution, which is on the rise. You know they they affect cancer in 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 a, in a really big way and affect our most deprived patients more so having having people from our most deprived areas in a situation where they can they, they feel empowered and feel they have the time and space to to um to make those those decisions which would be which is to support that that healthier life is absolutely the utopia um so yeah i agree with mary i'm, I'm not sure how we're getting there yet <laughs> give me a few, a few more years yeah <laughs>
0: You know, presumably you are because you're doing the work. But are you confident that we're going to you know, we're going to make strides and we're going to get uh, maybe not to that utopia, but we're going to make you know, real strides in this area in, um, uh, in Greater Manchester?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, certainly around the tobacco agenda, so the smoking, we've made huge strides already. Um, so, um, you may be aware of the essentially Great Manchester's a making tobacco making smoking history pledge and that's their aim is to make make smoking a total thing of the past and um, and smoking rates have come down massively already and we're continuing to do that so smoking is, is absolutely we're doing really well with as a as greater manchester as a whole obesity on the other hand we have a long way to go obesity is due to at cancer Research UK said that obesity is due to overtake smoking as the number one cause of cancer in the female population in about 25 years. So, you know, that that is something to be concerned about. And I think that's certainly the focus now is on some of, some of that. But like like smoking, it's going to take action from everybody, the whole system. Some of that sits in kind of national policy drivers and, and, and will be out of the reach of us in GM. In terms of the cancer bits, I am really confident. And I think we're doing some 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 great work in terms of looking at that and really putting ourselves under the microscope and starting to you know, even just the way we look at sort of performance, if you like, from an NHS point of view, which often gets people um, motivated to change, you know, we are now threading in those kind of performance metrics around inequalities to make people take action. So um, yeah, from a cancer point of view, I'm definitely excited about what's happening and and confident that we will make change. The larger societal bits, which will really drive that improvement in, um, Hmm. you know, people in deprived areas. I think, I think the ICB have, made a really good start and I think that work continues and I think you know the more it's given that kind of national prominence through things like the core 20 plus five sort of frameworks and promises I think um I think the more it'll support um our our clinicians and colleagues to 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 make those changes.
0: Uh, Mary and Gemma before we uh, before we wrap up um I know that you guys as well as working lots in primary care you guys have a lot of experience at the other end of maybe yeah, you know, the cancer journey for some people sadly end of life care how does how does deprivation affect the quality the the you know the sort of the experience of end of life care that some people have Mary
2: it could be a topic in itself i guess but i think um in terms of experience in hospice the in a relatively deprived area actually not not oldham um what i noticed was very sadly i saw quite a few quite young people um, end their journey in the hospice that had just been diagnosed very late. Um, I guess as clinicians, none of us necessarily think cancer as our number one um, diagnosis if a very young person presents. Um, but it would just seem that deprivation may play a little bit of an extra role in the the people that I saw anyway. Um, I think what, what we what we know or what we've been told is that morbidity is much greater, um, in deprived populations, but it's, it's also greater at a much younger age. So not only do people die younger in deprived areas, you know, life expectancy is, is several years younger than the national life expectancy, but people get unwell earlier, people get unwell younger. It's possibly lifestyle, um, you know, measures that contribute to this, but from what I've noticed, um, People sadly do get diagnosed with kind of stage three, stage four cancer because they're young and it's just not been at the forefront of the clinician's mind at the point of presentation. The people that I've seen had to go to their GP several times to even get a referral by which point you know they had metastatic cancer um it's not necessarily a blame thing now you know I'm not saying this to blame anybody and I probably would have done similar absolutely um but it it was just striking to me during that time that, that there were young people presenting quite late they appeared to be classically from the deprived areas that I've seen in my time and I wonder whether if possibly um they'd come from a less deprived background there might have been intervention or investigation earlier um because it it might have been you know at, at the forefront of somebody's mind a little bit earlier i'm not sure um that's de- definitely what i've experienced
0: jama do you want anything to add on the sort of end of life care perspective
2: a slightly different perspective to
1: mary's and maybe that because whilst on where i worked in in hospice care There was young people and sometimes um, they'd stay actually within the hospice for quite a number of weeks or months. What they think is some of that actually not necessarily to do with diagnosis and disease progression, but actually what's what's available out there. Um, Again, sometimes there's not actually many facilities for younger patients who are quite poorly so largely your demographics in hospice are more towards your 60, 70, 80 year olds Um, but again like I said that that is just my perspective of what I experienced. Um, We didn't necessarily get lots lots and lots of, of younger people, maybe they were cared for at home by families and it was the older people who didn't want to put that burden on the younger families what came into the hospice it's just yeah hospice care is is, it's lovely there's just not enough of it for people there just isn't enough and um not only for cancer care and I know that's what you know this podcast is about but it, it needs to be a wider remit for everyone end of life but yeah um Communities, there's there's not enough palliative care nurses or specialist palliative care nurses. What have that massive in depth of knowledge from cancer backgrounds? Sometimes maybe other backgrounds. Um, there's just not enough here in Oldham. At one point, there was five palliative care nurses for a population of around two hundred and fifty thousand wow, people. That's incredible, isn't it? It's 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 a it's a massive it's a massive caseload. And how do you go and give? that holistic care. Um, yeah. To be fair, I, I, I found I couldn't, and that was one of the reasons coming over to Hope Citadel, I was able to give people the care that they needed or that they wanted. And sometimes that's not just the medicine's at end of life. Sometimes people just need someone to sit and talk to sometimes, or more hmm. the holistic things within the house and a bigger MDT team. But yeah, the services, they have grown. I don't know, if, you know, over recent years in Odom the palliative care team has grown and they have you know they have put money into it for people is it ever going to be enough because as we know disease progression is increasing people with cancer is increasing are we ever going to be able to have enough clinicians and enough specialist teams and resources to meet that ever increasing amount of people and I know that kind of (laughs) against what Dan was saying about trying to get the cancer numbers down and at some point we hope we'll tip over that hill but yeah I'd love to be a little bit more optimistic it's just unfortunate at this time I think we are in a little bit of a sad state in in some areas to be fair it's
0: extraordinary isn't it the uh, the wonderful Catherine Mannix uh, who's written lots of books on on palliative care and end-of-life care she uh, made the comparison of the you know the amount of effort the amount of planning and resource going into the start of our lives compared to the end of our lives and it's extraordinary isn't it and there's really no no justification for it being such a disparity between those two things it's you know we don't we just don't take care of the end of our lives in the same way as we do the start of our lives and it's something that i think we've got a lot of catching up to do um mary Gemma, dan thank you so much for joining me today it's been really 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 insightful i hope it's been an interesting listen for everyone too thank you very much And there we go. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the GM Cancer Podcast. If you've missed the uh, previous episodes in this series looking at health inequalities, uh, please do go back and listen uh, wherever you get your podcasts from or on the GM Cancer website. It's been a really interesting series, hasn't it, actually? Um, Loads of things have cropped up, loads of challenges, uh, loads of really big issues that perhaps I, being very honest, didn't even realize were issues affecting some people um and i guess that's the point isn't it that we're exploring things that are slightly uncomfortable sometimes to listen to um but really important and i think the the key thing is that we we also focused on loads of the great work that's going on all across our region to tackle some of those issues as Gemma said in that episode they're not easy to tackle um and and they'll take a while to get you know get to grips with but um it's so important, isn't it, that where you live or, or, or you know, whether you have learning disabilities uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't affect the, uh, your outcomes when it comes to cancer and everyone gets the same chance to have the same treatment and the same opportunities. Um, So it's been a really interesting episode and a really interesting series. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already done so, uh, make sure you follow GM Cancer on social media and uh, we'll be back very soon, I hope, with some uh, new podcasts for you. Until then, (laughs) bye.